Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Legoland is Florida's newest theme park attraction. It's built on top of Florida's oldest theme park attraction, Cypress Gardens. It tied for number one with Grand, the Grand Canyon for the uh, number one attraction in the country in 1963. We'll visit the Gardner House Museum in Fort Pierce. We got together and hashed it over, and we thought it would find a good resting home over here by the museum, and the future generations and know how the old-timers lived. Remembering Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Come celebrate Cypress Gardens' 50th anniversary with Aquacade 85. The Golden Years Water Ski Show. And just a little something more. This is the grand opening of just one chrysanthemum. Now, imagine one million. That's a 1985 television commercial advertising the 50th anniversary of Cypress Gardens in Winter Haven. Florida tourism began in the 1800s as wealthy tourists came here seeking adventure and what they believed was a healthy and restorative climate. Florida became more accessible to tourists as Henry Flagler and Henry Plant built railroads and hotels in the late 1800s. By the early 1900s, automobiles allowed tin-can tourists to enjoy Florida's natural beauty. Florida's modern, theme park-based tourism industry began in 1935 with Dick Pope's Cypress Gardens. Lou Vickers is author of the book Cypress Gardens, America's Tropical Wonderland, How Dick Pope Invented Florida. Silver Springs was already here, and Silver Springs was, had, had attracted people to you know, come down with the steamboats and, and later with the glass-bottom boats. But I think what Dick Pope did differently is he created what could be called America's First theme park or Florida's first theme park and the theme was gardens and he presented it as America's tropical wonderland so that was to me the big difference and you know he got the moniker Mr. Florida he's an Argosy news uh, magazine called him the man who invented Florida so I think and I think he did to some degree with his uh, water skiing and with the southern bells and with this notion that Florida was a sun-drenched uh, garden. Dick Pope was a flamboyant and successful promoter. His marketing efforts led to Cypress Gardens appearing on hundreds of magazine covers and in newspaper photos across the country. The theme park became a popular setting for television commercials as well as TV shows and films. He wore the flashy suits with very very big flower patterns on them, had them, had them specially made for himself. He uh, apparently would stand outside at the gardens with a freshly cut sheet of $10 bills and would polish his car with them. Uh, he would do things like that to, to draw attention to himself. He said he was a short little guy, and so he had to stand out, and that's how he did it. He would also stage events at the gardens, but 
sometimes he would gather his uh, kids or he would gather his employees and say, I've called the press and told them something big's happening today. You have any ideas? <laughs> so he was kind of flamboyant in that respect. He, he didn't mind creating a, a scene to get attention. In addition to the gardens themselves and adventurous water ski shows, since 1940, Cypress Gardens has been known for its iconic southern bells in their hoop skirts. Lou Vickers. Well, the story about the Southern Bells that gets told over and over, and I believe it's mostly true, is that there was a freeze, a really hard freeze, and, and uh, Julie Pope was the one who came up with the idea to dress a young lady in a Southern Bell outfit and stand her outside so that people would not notice that the flame vine had pretty much been burnt by the frost. And so people came in, and once that happened, Dick Pope said, you know, we created a tradition that day, and they started using the Southern Bell and these young ladies would pose with uh, people that came in, and they would be sitting around the park in various locations where the tourists were going to come by, and, and they were there for photo ops. In the 1950s and 60s, before the Disney Corporation came to Florida, Cypress Gardens was the most popular tourist destination in the state. It tied for number one with Grand, the Grand Canyon for the uh, number one attraction in the country in 1963. That's how big it was. Uh, every Almost every celebrity that was around at that time came to Cypress Gardens at one point or another. I mean, he was able, Dick Pepp was able to get people to come and to, uh, to be there, to water ski, get their picture made. It was just a place to be, and I think part of it, he did have connections with the motion picture industry that went all the way back to newsreels, and he had forged relationships with people like Mike Todd, and Mike Todd came. He was famous for being Elizabeth Taylor's ex-husband, but he was also a producer and a filmmaker, and he uh, came to Cypress Gardens, and there's photos of him water skiing with a cigar in his mouth. But, you know, he helped create Cinerama, and so he, Dick Pope had connections with a lot of these people. Aquatic film star Esther Williams made an incredibly successful string of swimming-based musicals, and three of them were filmed in Florida. In the late 1940s, she starred in the Florida films On an Island with You and Neptune's Daughter. 1953's Easy to Love was filmed in Cypress Gardens. Dick Pope had a turbulent but symbiotic relationship with the woman called the Million Dollar Mermaid. In 1941, she was in town in Winter Haven to film some scenes for On an Island with You, and that's when the, the Winter Haven newspapers made a whole special edition with nothing but On an Island with You stories. And she told everybody that he was just a character, and she wrote him a little note and had a little ad in there saying, I know we've had our skirmishes, but, you know, we'll always work together again, something to that effect. And she did work with him, even though they had it. He would get mad at her, she would get mad at him. But she knew that he would build her swimming pools. He built three for her, actually. One was a Esther Williams swimming pool, and one was a, the Florida pool, and one was the Aquarama pool. Each film, each one of these pools was made for a particular reason that had to do with her specifically. And so she would come down and do her best movie star stuff, and he would do his best to promote her. They had a very interesting relationship, and she writes about him in her autobiography. Before starting Cypress Gardens in 1935, Dick Pope invested in Florida real estate and participated in the citrus industry. He kept those business ventures and more going after he opened his theme park. Lou Vickers. Well, his father was a big uh, real estate salesperson in Florida during the Florida boom, and, and Dick Pope was in on that. In fact, he and his father made one of the biggest orange grove sales ever in the state, I think in 1925 or something. 
So he was always about real estate. And um, But then the boom came, and the, I mean, the crash came, and so he went up north and uh, was promoting Johnson, Seaboard, Johnson Seahorse Motors, but he always used Florida as a backdrop. He almost always set his uh, sales in Florida. His heart never left Florida. When he came back to Florida, everybody was into citrus, and he got into it, too. He created a some kind of wire bin or something to help, you know, to pack citrus in. So he was always tied with it. And when he opened the gardens, uh, he did say it was going to be to beautify Winter Haven. And he got some of the city officials to give him money. And he got money from the Works Progress Administration. He had to pay it all back because they determined that, you know, Cypress Gardens was really a personal venture. And then he decided to go ahead and just go for it. And he did. But he was always... um, had a connection with the Citrus Commission. At one time, he handled their publicity. And so he was constantly merging his interests, Florida, Citrus, and Cypress Gardens. He always merged those interests and um, always promoted one. He had no problem prom- promoting other attractions because he felt that the more people came to Florida, the more they were likely to come to his place, too. In her book, Cypress Gardens, America's Tropical Wonderland, How Dick Pope Invented Florida, Lou Vickers documents Pope's various ventures and collaborations, including his stint as the chief promoter of St. Petersburg, Florida. Yeah, he worked as their PR guy. I thought that was kind of funny. He, he did PR for quite a few different groups. Uh, St. Petersburg was one of them, and, and I discovered that story about he had a spread in life, and, and it was kind of a... a spread about how these photographs were made and they revealed the magic behind the camera and it turned out that the photographs were not made at St. Petersburg they were made in Winter Haven and he got in a little bit of trouble over that. I mean people just were mad at him but he still I'm sure put his check in the bank. In 1947 Cypress Gardens got some competition from another Florida theme park, Wikiwachi. Lou Vickers is co-author with Sarah Dion of the book Wikiwachi, City of Mermaids, a history of one of Florida's oldest roadside attractions. Vickers describes Wikiwachi founder Newton Perry and his vision for Florida. Newton Perry is a very fascinating person. Um, he came to Florida in, in like 1911 or something and became a lifeguard at Silver Springs. And that led to his lifelong involvement with water he uh, did underwater newsreels there in 1924. He was doing underwater photography there in the 20s and 30s. And um, he, he uh, later went to Wakulla Springs, and he continued doing those things there. He, he had underwater beauty contests, underwater fencing matches with teenagers that he trained to perform underwater. And again, he had a really close connection with Granlin Rice, um, who would do these newsreels. And so he was making a name for himself doing that, but... All the while, he was developing ideas that would later, he would later take to Wikiwachi. And so in, in 1947 or 46, he, he decided to go down and, you know, open Wikiwachi. He had some partners in on this, and they went down, and he had already been doing this for 20 years, this underwater stuff. And so he went down there and opened uh, Wikiwachi, and, and it quickly, too, became very famous because right after it opened, Hollywood called and said, do you know a place where we can make a movie about a mermaid? And that was Mr. Peabody and the Mermaid, and they filmed that, parts of it there. And uh, it became very famous. Elvis came and trampled, you know, girls trampled the flowers there. But, uh, you know, it became very famous, and it's a state park now, and the mermaids are now park rangers. 
Wikiwachi, along with Cypress Gardens, was very popular throughout the 1950s, but Wikiwachi reached its pinnacle of success after the American Broadcasting Company purchased the park in 1959. ABC did buy it, um, and that's when it, they took away the little theater and they built the million dollar theater and, um, you know, that would seat hundreds, and they started putting on what they called underwater Broadway shows. And, um, and again, they, you know, they did an underwater premiere of uh, the Mr. Limpet movie. The was it the Incredible Mr. Limpet? Yeah. So a lot of Esther Williams even popped in to say hi to the mermaids. All the Miss Americas would come down there. Elvis came. Um, in fact, I'm putting together a, a collection of photos now that uh, is going to come out from the University Press of Florida. It's just a collection of underwater photos made at. Um, Wikiwachi. When when ABC bought it, they they stopped doing their little ballet shows and they started doing full blown productions. Alice in Waterland, uh, the Underwater Circus, and so all of a sudden they had these amazing props and they were doing musicals underwater, and they still do those shows now. Florida's Disney World and its affiliated theme parks are the most successful on the planet, but the Disney Corporation owes some of its success to the state's earliest theme parks. In fact, Roy Disney visited Cypress Gardens before the Disney Corporation was brought to Florida. He did. Uh, Roy Disney was in town, and Dick Pope said he thought he was over there to collect some money because Dick Pope had rented some some um, props from him. <laughs> but he was there to check out Cypress Gardens. And the rumor is, or the story or the myth that gets told, is that you know Roy Disney's in uh, Dick Pope's office, and he's calling Walt and says, there's a guy down here in Florida selling, you know, letting people pay to come look at flowers and they got the idea to go ahead and they got the energy to go ahead and open Disneyland and then later of course Disney World came um yeah Dick Dick Pope welcomed them initially uh, when they did a press conference the person that did the press conference for Disney said that this was going to be a labor of love and that they had no intention of sucking all the uh patrons from other places but that's not how it ended up Cypress Gardens and Wikiwachi had worked well together, and both were extremely popular in the 1950s and 60s. When Disney came to Florida in the early 1970s, things changed for America's original theme parks. Lou Vickers explains where Cypress Gardens and Wikiwachi are today. Wikiwachi almost closed. It it really did. I mean, hardly anyone was going there. They had quit doing advertising, and Disney World had sucked all the people. In fact, some of the mermaids told me it was BD. In AD, before Disney and after Disney, and the lines diminished overnight for them. They almost closed, but the state of Florida stepped in and bought Wikiwachi, and it is now a state park, and the mermaids are now known as park rangers, and they do perform. And the former mermaids even still do a show once a month, which is well worth the drive to see. So they're still going. Um, Cypress Gardens uh, was bought by Merlin Entertainments, which owns Legoland. I went to the press conference and felt pretty comfortable with those with that group. They seemed to respect what Dick Pope had done. They recognized the value of that park to Floridians, and the park, the gardens part itself is preserved. Uh, they couldn't develop it, so they're going to have that, and they're going to have the the ski show still, and apparently the. The Southern Bells, although the joke goes, they might be made out of Legos, so I'm not sure about that. Lou Vickers' books on Cypress Gardens and Wikiwachi are published by the University Press of Florida. Wow!
Come celebrate Cypress Garden's 50th anniversary with Aquacade 85. Wow! The Golden Years Water Ski Show. And just a little something more. This is the grand opening of just one chrysanthemum. Now, imagine one million. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the nation's oldest city. More formally, we are known as the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in the continental United States. And here, we have the oldest of many things. One of those is the nation's oldest street, Avalay Street. Right off of the original 1572 town plan, the plaza that was built by 1590, all of these streets were laid out. It was once called the Street of the Royal Hospital. That's how far back it goes, when St. Augustine actually had a royal hospital. Also on Avalay Street, you can find the Jimenez Facio House and the O'Reilly House, two of the oldest structures in St. Augustine. You can walk down this street, walk down four centuries of footprints of historical figures and characters. It's rich history. It's available to visitors every day. It's a wonderful way of experiencing the nation's oldest city. Dana St. Clair is Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Fort Pierce native Dan Gardner lived in his family's home on US-1 for 46 years. As Janie Gould explains, now the Gardner House is part of the Indian River County Historical Museum on South Beach, and Gardner gives tours. Dan Gardner is sitting at the dining table of a house-turned-museum in Fort Pierce that bears his name, the Gardner House. The lace tablecloth, blue and white china, and fruit bowl centerpiece remind him of how his mother set the table nearly every day for nearly half a century. I was born in the local hospital, but when I came home from there, I spent the next 46 years in the house. And of course, that house now is on South Beach, but in the 80s, it was still on US-1, and it was moved. How did that come about? Well, the Historical Society was needing an old, what they call a cracker-style house, and we had just moved out of our house, so my 
dad and my mother and I, we got together and hashed it over and we thought it would find a good resting home over here by the museum and the future generations and know how the old timers lived. That must have been quite an undertaking, moving it across the bridge. My mother and dad and I each, we followed the house over to make sure it got safely to its new resting spot. I guess one of the good memories is the big porch out front. My dad built a large gate over the entrance and so I had the whole front area for a playground in the early days to keep me off of US-1. There was a hammock out there and a swing and all. There were a lot of retirees that lived in the hotel next door and they would stop by and make a fuss over me when I was a little fellow and of course I loved that. This was the old Biltmore Hotel which is not here anymore. US-1 was two lanes and you were telling me that there was a humpback bridge there. The old humpback bridge was mighty similar to the one that's over on 2nd Street that we know as Tickle Tummy Hill. I don't know of any nickname that ours had there, but it was designed the same way with that big humpback. Sounds like the bridge would have been a good place for you to play on your skates or your bike or something. Best was my little push two-wheel scooter. I could push it up to the top of that bridge and come sailing down here and give my mother a few more gray hairs. I used to enjoy, too, each new year for the new cars. They'd come by on trucks at that time that were uncovered. I knew what was going to be on the showroom before anybody else could see them go by on the trucks. That was a big deal, the new models of the cars. Did you have a favorite? Well, my dad was always a Ford man. It was in my blood, I guess. You were in this house, the Gardner house, during World War II when you heard something really loud. Thankfully, we'd been forewarned a little beforehand. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we heard there would be a tremendous explosion, and there was. Seemed like over on North Beach, they had built a replica of the Normandy Beach wall, and they tried various explosives on our beach to see which would be the best to penetrate it. Well, they found one that did, because it cracked the chimney on our house in town. Was this a wall that the Germans had put up at Normandy to uh, repel an invasion? I was so little that I didn't know the details, but I believe that was it. It must have scared you to death. It definitely did, but thankfully I was kind of young at the time. I guess things don't affect you as much then as when you get older. Did you ever go over to the beach during the war years when the uh, Navy SEALs and frogmen were training there? Actually, no civilians were allowed on either North Beach or South Beach during the war years. The only one that was allowed there was a dog that we sold to him over there for a mascot, and he had the free run of going there or coming back to visit us. You sold your dog to make some military men happy? Yep, and the dog, it seemed like, he just got lonesome at times, I guess like people do, and he would come over to our house, come up to the front door and let out a few hollers, and after he visited, was a little while here come an army jeep would pull up out front the dog would run out there and jump in the jeep he'd made his house call here and he's ready to go back so that dog made his way across the old wooden bridge found your house and just wanted to say hello that was it how did you feel about giving him up well it was almost a case of necessity during the war years he ate so much we just couldn't afford to feed him then he ate as much then as i do now when the Historical Museum switched to an all-volunteer staff late last year, Gardner was asked to give tours of his old home. So I thought, well, I guess it's kind of appropriate there if I put 46 years in there, why not? So that's where I am. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Four years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mandated integration in public accommodations, a group of Florida students were staging sit-ins to protest discrimination here. Bill Dudley talks to the author of a book that won the inaugural Stetson Kennedy Award from the Florida Historical Society in 2009. We knew what happened in other sit-in cities. We knew how people were viciously attacked, 
but it was still important that we confront the problem. We were committed to doing that. Retired college administrator and former Jacksonville City Council member Rodney Hurst. He's the winner of a bronze medal in the 2008 Florida Book Awards for It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, his personal account of the struggle for civil rights in early 1960s Jacksonville. Well, I think the audience for the book is anyone who wants information about what those days were like certainly from Jacksonville, but in the state of Florida. By 1960, under Mayor Hayden Burns, then serving the fourth of five terms in office, Jacksonville's skyline had sprouted new insurance company skyscrapers, a courthouse, and a civic center. But the city was called one of the most segregated in America. One man who wanted change was a charismatic eighth-grade history teacher, Rutledge Pearson, leader of the Jacksonville NAACP Youth Council. Pearson was a man who called himself a man in a hurry. He was pushing integration and pushing the city to move towards integration. Jacksonville native and Clemson University historian Abel Barkley. The civil rights movement from 1960 was basically a struggle between Rutledge Pearson and Hayden Burns to open up the city. Beginning in February 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, blacks, usually local college students, had started sitting in at segregated department store lunch counters. Pearson decided to try the same thing in Jacksonville with his youth council. In Jacksonville, 90% of the sit-ins were high school students. I was president of youth council in ACP at that time at age 16. We sat in at all of the lunch counters in downtown Jacksonville starting in August, and we had enough participants to sit at every seat. Although the city's news media maintained a strict blackout concerning the sit-ins, Hearst and the others could sense pressure was building, especially when a young white man joined the group. After we had done this for two weeks, and after an incident with a white student from Florida State who sat in with us was almost beaten, we think he could have been lynched. That following Saturday, August 27, 1960, we were sitting in in downtown Jacksonville Grant's department store. Mr. Pearson had gotten a report about some strange happenings in the park in downtown Jacksonville. The black students emerged from Grant's just after 12 noon. A few minutes later, the 16-year-old Hearst found himself running for his life. As we came out of that store, we were met by 200 whites with axe handles and baseball bats. And they were running toward us. You know, you couldn't make out in the beginning what they had in their hand. But obviously, as you could see what was happening to other folk, any black who was downtown was being hit. And obviously, we were the object of their affection, as it were. You don't think about harm or danger. Maybe because of youthfulness, maybe it was because of the idealism of wanting to take on this segregation, this racism problem. When you're confronted with this imminent danger, this imminent violence, you have to make pragmatic and real-world adjustments. So the real-world adjustment was to get out of the way and run as fast as you can. Violence continued throughout the day and into the evening across the city. Absent during the beatings, police appeared as blacks began to fight back. The St. Petersburg Times reported more than 70 injured with over 150 arrests. After Axe Handle Saturday, blacks began boycotting Jacksonville's downtown. Later, without the support of the mayor, an unofficial biracial committee was formed. Some lunch counters were integrated, but racial violence continued to plague Jacksonville throughout the decade. Hayden Burns later served one term as governor of Florida. 
Rutledge Pearson lost his teaching job, ending his days as an organizer for the Laundry Workers Union. People have told me, both publicly and privately, you know, why do we really want to wash our dirty laundry? And why aren't we just going from here? Because we don't teach classes in high school and in institutions of higher education that say, let's move on from here. We teach classes in American history. So it's important that we know what happened in the past, but we also need to understand the climate, the racial climate of a country based on a Christian ethic that said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but still chose to discriminate against an entire race of people just based on the color of their skin. And that continued up through the 60s, and some say that it continues today. Rodney Hurst, author of It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.